invite you to turn this morning to the book of Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 1. And we will uh, begin in verse 1. You'll find that on... I do want to say 126 in the Pew Bible in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word, we certainly invite you to take uh, the Bible there, that pew rack, as our gift to you today. I do, I do want to say thank you, choir, by the way. Wasn't that uh, just a wonderful uh, time of praise and worship? Uh, before uh, God, in His kindness, brought our family up to Hamilton, we, we perhaps you know, we, we were at a, a small little country church, a little Main Street church in Drake's Branch, Virginia, a town of 400 people. And, and I'll tell you, there was not a Sunday that went by that we would not sing of the blood of Christ in one way or another. Um, and so that just got ingrained in me over seven years of ministry. It's wonderful to rejoice in the blood of our, the Lamb of God. That covers our sin. Thank you, choir, for helping us to do that. Well, Proverbs chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel. To know wisdom and instruction. To understand words of insight. To receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity. To give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance. To understand a proverb and a saying, and the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in which we can consider your word this morning. We pray that your spirit would come and descend upon us even now. We trust he's here. May he work powerfully in our own hearts that we might hear from you through this passage. And that, Father, we through it might be more conformed to the likeness of our King. For he desires to have many brothers conform to his image. You would help us today. Move us along this path. Even help us to become wiser today. In light of your word, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, of course, it's been said it's a, it's a big day today. Right? It's one of my favorite days of the year. <laughs> Father's Day. Kids, treat your children well today. I'm expected to be, just to be clear, treated well today, right? I'm looking forward to receiving the uh, praise and adoration of the carnation that uh, they will uh, express to me their affection. I, I trust that I will hear that today, and um, I'm very much excited. In fact, I think I'll receive cards to that effect, well, uh, hand-drawn cards. I've already received some of them. Now, my, my children are still young, as you know, so their cards will not be quite as sassy as some of the Father's Day cards that I came across this week. Uh, I saw one card that said, Dad, thanks for sticking with me through my 30-year awkward phase. Um, another I appreciated, uh, and maybe I'll receive something like this uh, when my children grow up. It says on the cover, Dad, thanks for everything. I'll never be able to repay you. And then you, you open the card and it says, literally, I can't repay you. I owe you like a billion dollars. <laughs> Another card said, uh, please accept this Father's Day card as a token of my poverty. Uh, and one I in particular enjoyed is, Dad, thanks for letting us do stuff that Mom would never allow. Uh, well, see, dads do that because we want our kids to be happy. I mean, how many times today across this country of ours will a dad say to his kid, you know, son, daughter, all I want is for you to be happy. Right? I mean, that's what we want as dads. We want our kids to be happy. But I kind of wonder, what, what do we mean by that? What do we mean by happy? Do we mean a greater contentment? Do we mean a, a stronger devotion to truth? Do we mean abounding wisdom? Or do we mean successful and healthy, perhaps loved? I mean, what really is happy? 
In preparing for this message, I remembered a conversation I heard years ago between a pastor and a man named Michael. Michael was running a french fry stand in Manhattan. The pastor asked Michael, he said, what do you want? And Michael said, what do you mean, what do I want? And the pastor said, well, what do you want with your life? And Michael thought for a moment and said, well, you know, I'd like to finish my MBA. And the pastor said, oh, great, that's wonderful. And then what? Well, Michael said, well, I would like then to maybe buy out my partner and own this french fry stand all to myself. And the pastor said, that's wonderful. And then what? Michael said, well, maybe, you know, I, I can own a whole string of french fry stands. The pastor said, oh, I can understand why you'd want to do that. Well, well then what? And Michael thought for a moment, said, well, I'd like to get married and, and, and have children and, and that they would be healthy. And, and the pastor said, okay, so you, you get your MBA, you buy out your partner, you have a string of french fry stands, you're married, you have healthy children, and, and then what? Michael said, well, you know, I, maybe I, I can make so much money I can retire early. The pastor said, okay, so you got MBA, uh, bought out your partner, owned a bunch of french fry stands, married, healthy kids, retired early, and then what? Well, Michael thought for a moment. And then he said, well, well then you die. Is, is that what life is all about? Is that why we're here upon this earth? To sell french fries, retire early, have, have a nice, comfortable family? Is that really what God intends for us? I wonder, my brothers and sisters in Christ, what are you living for? Why, why do you do the things you do? It seems to be the question that the book of Proverbs raises over and over again as it lays out for us, I think, the way to live. You might consider the book of Psalms, which precedes the book of Proverbs, as a book showing us how to worship, whereas Proverbs tells us how to live lives. I like how Derek Kidner, the great Old Testament commentator, said, the book of Proverbs does not really take you to church. It calls you across. It calls across to you in the street about some everyday matter or points things out at home. Its function is to put godliness into working clothes. Or consider Jeremiah chapter 18, when the prophet says, The law shall not perish from the priest, nor the counsel from the wise, nor the word from the prophet. You see, sometimes we need the law from the priest, don't we? And and sometimes we need the, the grand truth from a prophet. But sometimes life is is too complex simply for a rule. And we need the counsel from the wise. We need wisdom. Wisdom seems to handle the gray areas in life. The book of Proverbs will help us to grow in wisdom. It will teach us about these gray areas. How to treat an employee, for instance. Or how to raise children. Or respect your father. Or honor your spouse. Or be a friend. The book of Proverbs will tell us the importance of words and the necessities of listening and the danger of anger and the salve of uh, confession. It's an incredibly practical book. It will tell you when to keep secrets and it will give you advice for dropping in unannounced. It will tell you what kind of volume you should use early in the morning. It is a wonderful book. And yet it is simply not a collection of fortune cookies. It is not a self-help book. It is not an optional add-on in order to enhance your life. I think that's how we think of wisdom. Well, you know, wisdom's good if I get around to it. But there are other things more pressing. Like it's some kind of supplement to to righteousness. And I'll pursue righteousness and godliness. And yet wisdom, you know, I don't give it much thought. I'll, I'll gain it if it comes. But there's not much intentionality in pursuit of it. And yet the Bible continually reinforces the importance of wisdom. David would write, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the simple wise. James would say, This wonderful invitation, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all. Paul would write to the church at Colossae, I am praying for you that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom. Later, he would write to his protege, Timothy, saying, You have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom, not only for salvation, but to equip you in every area of life. Every area of life, we need wisdom. 
And this book goes to every area of life. It shows us how to live. It, it says, for instance, in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 13, happy is the man who finds wisdom. So you want to be happy. Dads, do you want your kids to be happy? If so, then become a wise man and teach them your wisdom. The book of Proverbs will help you. It will help you not just make you happy. It might even just save you from difficulty. It might save you from harm or even death. If you note there in verse 32 of chapter 1, for the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. Chapter 13 and verse 14 says, The teaching of the wise is a fountain of life, that one may turn away from the snares of death. It is in many ways a, a matter of life and death. Take, for instance, the account found in Second Samuel of David. David's son Absalom decided to revolt against his father and, and kicked him off his throne and, and took his throne. And David fled for his life out into the wilderness. And so David is on the run in utter dismay uh, that his son has now betrayed him. But to his great horror, even worse than the betrayal of his son, is that David's chief counselor, a man named Ahithophel, abandons David and decides to throw his lot in with Absalom. Well, David knew that there was no chance of survival for him if Absalom had access to the wisdom of Ahithophel. And so David thinks, okay, I have one chance at this. And he gets his buddy Hushi, and he says, Hushi, I'm going to send you to Absalom, and I need you to convince him that you are siding with him. And once you are in his council, I need you to contradict everything Ahithophel tells Absalom. And so who she goes? And he gets in good with King Absalom and, and Absalom calls his counselors together and he has a decision. And the decision is, do I attack David now or do I wait? And Ab, uh, Ahithophel says, oh, king, you have to attack now. Attack while he's off balance. Attack while he's in grief. Uh, attack before he's able to consolidate power. Attack now and David is yours and the kingdom will be yours as well. Well, Hushi recognizes the wisdom of such counsel, and he begins to appeal to Absalom's fear. He says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, king. This is David we're talking about, and the greatest warrior Israel's ever known. And by the way, he has quite a good deal of experience living in the wilderness from his years fleeing from King Saul. Are you sure you want to go after the greatest warrior? He may end up killing you. Or even if he doesn't, he'll elude you. And what you look like a fool when he's running from you and you can't catch him. And then he appeals to his vanity and says, well, King, you're pretty popular already, right? Why not just rule well and get the people to, to side with you and they'll abandon David into your hands. So Absalom considers the counsel of these two men and he decides, you know, I think I'll just sit back. He takes Hushi's advice. Ahithophel hears that his advice is not taken. He goes home and hangs himself. Why would he hang himself? Well, the, the, the assumption is if this king will reject wisdom, you may be able to keep disaster away for a little bit, but eventually disaster is coming. So why wait for it? Why wait for David to come and exact his revenge? I'll take it into my own hands. Such is the importance of wisdom. I mean, how many people that, that you may know or be aware of who have been talented, intelligent, beautiful, educated, and their lives are in ruins? And how many people do you know that have very little of those things, and yet their lives seem to be flourishing? Life is good for them. What is the difference? I'll tell you, it's wisdom. And so we begin today a, a series on the book of Proverbs. I've always wanted to preach Proverbs, by the way. I've never done it before. This will be my first sermon in the book of Proverbs. I've always been intimidated by Proverbs. I'm not quite sure how to preach it. So, um, you know, be kind to me, if you will. And that's fact is why we decided to go a very short sermon on Proverbs. We'll do it in the summer when most of you aren't here anyways, right? Um, 
and I'll learn, and then sometime later I'll, I'll come back to it. So, uh, but I'm excited. I, uh, uh, I think Proverbs is, is going to be wonderfully helpful. It's already been a massive blessing, this passage, even for me, and, and I hope and trust it might be for you. I, I would enjoy, uh, invite to you, perhaps you don't know what you want to read this summer. Uh, it may be good for you just to spend the summer in the book of Proverbs. As you know, there are 31 chapters, a chapter for every day of the month, as some have suggested. I know Billy Graham reads a chapter every day and has for years. Maybe today you could get set aside some time. It'll probably only take you two or three minutes. Read chapter 19. I trust you'll find a proverb in there or two that will pique your interest. Might be a, a wonderful discussion around the dinner table. What does this mean? How do we apply this to our life? Incredibly practical. Why don't you join me in praying for wisdom as James invites us. If anyone lacks wisdom, let him pray. Let me say very humbly to you, you lack wisdom. I, in fact, I don't need to know who you are to know that to be the case. There is wisdom that you can gain. You have not achieved it all. Perhaps you ought to pray for it and to seek it. Well, the book of Proverbs begins in chapter 1, verse 1, in this little kind of title, if you will. The Proverbs of Solomon, it reads, Son of David, King of Israel. In this verse, we realize uh, how, how the book is written and who wrote it. You see, he says, the Proverbs of Solomon. So this book will largely be made up of Proverbs. You'll find them once we get to chapter 10 and throughout the rest of the book. So the first nine chapters will not be written so much in these uh, proverbial form. Though they're there, you'll really recognize them once you are further into the book. The proverb, of course, is just a little short saying of practical truth, a little memorable model of reality. We were talking about this as a family last night in our family worship together, and, and we were talking about the proverbs. In fact, I shared one of the, the proverbs one with my kids. It's a, it's a good Father's Day proverb, I think. It's uh, Proverbs 30 and verse 17. You don't have to turn there, but just consider this. Maybe this would be one you can talk about. Chapter 30, verse 17. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother, will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. And so I think, well, that's a pretty good... I mean, that's just that's the Bible. I didn't write that. So, um, And so children uh, and, and dads and all that, happy Father's Day. Um, just be, be aware of what the Word says. Of course, uh, we don't have to even really look in the book of Proverbs to know Proverbs. Um, at least Proverbs that we're familiar with. I, in my study, I, I discovered that virtually every culture creates its own Proverbs. And of course, ours is no exception. Um, nothing ventured, nothing gained. All that glitters is not gold. Absence makes the heart grow fonder. An apple day keeps the doctor away. Misery loves company, right? You know all these. Right? Beggars cannot be what? All right. Better late than? Right? Better safe than? No pain? Look before? Garbage in, out of sight. Well, look at that, see? You didn't even know you knew all these, right? Right? And we even have all these strange animal proverbs. The early bird catches the worm. The birds of a feather flock together. When the cat's away, the mice will play. Don't count your chickens before they hatch. Right? And these, I think, are useful. This is why we've incorporated them in our culture. They teach us truth about life and reality. And as useful as they may be, I would suggest to you that the biblical Proverbs are far more useful. For they are inspired by our God through the pen of Solomon. As you see there in verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. Solomon would write most of the book of Proverbs, though not all of it. A man named Augur would write some. Lemuel would write others. And then there are chapters written by the wise, unidentified men, or perhaps women. We don't know who wrote these works. Um, of course, Solomon wrote most of it, as we see there in verse 1. Solomon was incredibly wise, you know. First Kings chapter 4 says, God gave uh, Solomon wisdom beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore. And so this is a wisdom in which uh, Solomon asked for. Solomon was was uh, overwhelmed by the responsibility of ruling the kingdom of Israel. And, and that weight and that responsibility to ascend to the throne and become the king over God's people was just overcoming on him. And God says, shows up and says, okay, Solomon, you're about to rule. Ask me anything and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, this is what I need. I need wisdom. And Solomon received wisdom from God in abundance. And he shares it with us in this book. 
In fact, as I was thinking about that account, I came across a story in which uh, the dialogue between Solomon and God asking for wisdom played out very powerfully in history. It was late one evening in 1837, perhaps you know the story, when the royal family was asleep in Buckingham Palace and Lord Chamberlain made his way to the bedroom of an 18-year-old girl named Victoria. He woke her, and as she rubbed the sleep from her eyes, her uncle told her, uh, he, uh, Lord Chamberlain told her that her uncle had died and that she was now the Queen of England. She would now rule the empire upon which the sun never set at the age of 18. And then Lord Chamberlain sat on the bed next to her and he opened the Bible he was carrying. He turned to First Kings. And as Victoria sat on her bed in the wee hours of the, uh, that morning, she listened to how Solomon asked God for wisdom above all else in order to rule. Lord Chamberlain closed his Bible and young Victoria pondered for a moment and then finally and famously said, If I am to be queen, then I shall be good. And thus began one of the greatest days of Britain's kingdom ruled by a woman who gave decrees based upon Scripture and whose own life was dedicated to the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. To be good, to be wise, seems to be the purpose of this book. And so consider with me why we need wisdom. Why we need wisdom. Verse 2 tells us, to know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. You notice several words are used there synonymously. Wisdom, instruction, insight, prudence, knowledge, discretion, and so forth. All describe ways to be competent with life's realities. The great, uh, most famous commentator on the book of Proverbs, a man named Gerhard von Rad, a German theologian, would define wisdom this way. Righteous competency in regard to life's realities. I think that's brilliant. Righteous competency in regards to life's realities. We see in verses 2 through 4, it involves both thinking and acting. The, the, the pro- writer of Proverbs, Solomon, wants to teach you how to think. You need to learn how to think. Look at verse 2 again. To know wisdom and instruction, right? To know something, to understand words of insight. The book of Proverbs will help you understand how life works. It will teach you about life's realities. It will teach you how to think. It will, it will give you insight. Wisdom is insight. Insight simply means to notice distinctions. Insight means to see other things that, see things that other people might miss. I think of Sherlock Holmes, perhaps, who enters a crime scene with Dr. Watson. And Dr. Watson looks around and it all seems to be a mess. He can't make heads or tails of it. Well, Holmes, he, he looks at it and, and he sees 30 clues, doesn't he? I mean, he has it all figured out. He, he sees the distinction. He, he has insight, right? Elementary, my dear Watson. Right? Don't you see, he might say. See, insightful people see what other people miss. They see, they see if you do this, then this will happen, and then this might happen. And they understand how, how uh, actions have implications You know, others might look at an event and say there's only one option. An insightful person would say, no, there's there's, in fact, I see ten things you could do here. Right? Insight gives you understanding and and you notice the distinctions. You see things more clearly. So he teaches you how to think. I I like verse 4 as well. To give prudence to the simple. I like the word prudence. We don't use that word much, do we? Maybe your translation translates it as shrewdness. Proverbs 8.5 says, O simple ones, learn prudence. Prudence, as I understand it, is, is how to solve problems. You know, insight may be able to diagnose the problem. Prudence helps you to solve it. It's, it's shrewd. Prudence knows how you can go from, from A to B successfully. Not just talk about it. Those with prudence, those who are shrewd, are able to actually move their lives in the direction in which they want to go and avoid the hidden dangers along the way. In fact, many have, uh, when I was studying this passage, 
One mentioned uh, the great example of prudence might be Magellan. You know, Magellan, the first to circumnavigate the world. The hardest part for him was sailing around South America. It was on the dawn of October 1520 when he began to lead his fleet of ships through the treacherous region now known as the Straits of Magellan. 343 miles, constantly buffeted by contrary winds, going one way, one moment, the next way, the next moment. And there, all around, were these hidden reefs just below the water's surface, which would sink a ship immediately. Well, as Magellan stood upon the deck, he noticed what others had missed. He noticed the behavior of the water. It was hard to see. But he had eyes to see it, and he saw that at places the water, even in the middle of the ocean, seemed to be running like a river. And so he surmised that the, you just follow this river in the middle of the ocean, and the, this, this water going through the river is actually going in between the hidden reefs. So he just followed that, turning this way and turning that way, taking 38 days to sail just 343 miles, emerging finally into the calm and peaceful ocean which he would name the Mar Pacifico, or the Pacific Ocean, because of the peace of that water and the peace in his heart and that he had made it through the dangers around him. You see, life is dangerous, isn't it? I mean, there is trouble all around us. Often it's hidden from us. We can't see it. We often walk right into it, not knowing it is approaching us. We need wisdom and prudence to see the dangers that lie hidden around us. We, we need it to make us competent in regard to life's realities. If you're understanding this prudence and the insight, you, you probably will note that, that wisdom, therefore, is more than information, isn't it? Wisdom is more than, than education. Right? Of course, it assumes you have knowledge. We need knowledge to be wise. But there are plenty of knowledgeable fools. Let's just speak about my own profession, if I could put it in that way. How many churches have suffered greatly because they had a knowledgeable pastor who was well acquainted with truth and yet desperately lacked in wisdom? did not know how to apply the truth, did not understand if I push this truth at this time, the implications of that might be this or that. We need to know what to do with knowledge. We need insight. We need prudence. We need wisdom. It teaches us how to think. But more than that, it teaches us how to love. And I think this is incredibly important for us because we might think, okay, wisdom is just about success. It's just about, you know, uh, uh, achieving the, the life I want. It's going to help me get what I want. That's why I need to be wise. Well, hopefully you want to be loving because that's what wisdom is for. As you see in verse 3, to receive instruction in wise dealing and righteousness, justice, and, and equity. Right? It, it's about how to be right and just. Wisdom is moral. It's righteous. Right? Wisdom is righteous. And, and so are the wise. Right? You need wisdom. Uh, well, put it this way. Wisdom is more than being moral, right? There are plenty of moral fools. Plenty of people who want to do the right thing, even the God-honoring thing, and they end up causing more damage than, than if they had done nothing. I, I think of my, my brother and sister even testifying to the poverty at Eagle Butte. To help the poor is clearly a good and God-honoring thing. And yet, I would, I would suggest, and, and you all correct me if I'm wrong, you can help the poor, and indeed, these particular poor are being helped in such a way that is actually harmful to them. Actually hurts them. Right? Good intentions, but a lack of wisdom. And so we, we, wisdom helps us, te- teaches us how to apply the, the moral, godly truths which we find so dear. Wisdom pulls it all together. It's righteous competency with how life works. And I would suggest you need it. In fact, Solomon tells us, secondly, who needs wisdom. You see in verse 4, the young need it, of course, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Right? The young need wisdom. He assumes the young to be simple or naive. He assumes them to be gullible, right? They'll believe anything and anyone Certainly you've seen this in your children, especially when they're young, they'll believe anything you say. 
Right. You'll tell them there's a chubby red man that flies around the world and comes down your chimney once a year, right? Okay. All right. That works. They're, they're simple. They're naive. Right? And so what do they need? Well, they need wisdom. That's your job, dads. Happy Father's Day. Impart wisdom to your children. They need it. The youth need, need it. After all, they need it because they're, they're foolish. Children are foolish. We're born that way. No one is born wise, right? No one, no one comes in this world knowing how life works. We need to be taught. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the ch- child, the Proverbs tell us. So it's no fault of their own, of course. The reason they're, they're naive is they don't, haven't experienced life, which is what makes the book of Proverbs so particularly wonderful. You can learn wisdom without experience, right? We, we even have this proverb, right? We say, live and learn. And what we mean is when you go out and you find something works well, we'll learn that. Or you find something leads to disaster, we'll learn that, right? And my children will testify. They've heard this a thousand times. That Daddy does not get upset when something bad happens, but Daddy will tell them every time, accumulate wisdom, right? I don't mind it that it happened the first time, but when it happens again, that's when uh, we need to have a more stern talk. You should be learning from this, right? Live and learn. But the book of Proverbs comes and says, wait a second, there's another way. And it's learn and live, right? Learn these truths that you might live rightly. It will help you avoid the mistakes. The youth need wisdom. And perhaps you're thinking, okay, well, you know, I don't, consider myself young anymore, so I must be off the hook. Well, I'm afraid not, as you note, verse 5. The old, or the older, perhaps I should say, need wisdom. Let the wise hear, and what? Increase in learning. And the one who understands obtain guidance. Let the wise get more wisdom. Never stop growing in wisdom. So if you consider yourself old or young this morning, you need wisdom, the book of Proverbs will help you. If you consider yourself simple or wise this morning, you need wisdom. The book of Proverbs will help you. You know, you know the only person that doesn't think he needs more wisdom is the fool. That's right. Look at the end of verse 7. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right? The, if, if you are here this morning and you don't think you need to grow in wisdom, then you actually have very little the fool is wise in his own eyes. The fool despises instructions. Fools are sure they know. Fools don't need the counsel of others. Fools don't need to take in other people's perspectives. They're set in their way, whether they're young or old. And so don't be a fool. Seek wisdom. Of course, that raises the question, how to get it? And consider third and lastly with me, how we might get wisdom. Of course, we could spend a great deal of time on this. I intend to, God willing, the next time I preach on this book, we're going to talk specifically on how to accumulate it. But we can begin considering that in verse 7. This passage upon which the many have said the whole book of Proverbs hangs. The fear of the Lord, it says, is the beginning of knowledge. The book of Proverbs opens with the fear of the Lord. It closes in praise of the woman who fears the Lord. Throughout it, we read things like the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. The fear of the Lord leads to a long life. The fear of the Lord avoids death. The fear of the Lord leads to humility. It leads to honor. It even leads to wealth. Right? And we read here in verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Or chapter 9 and verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? We'll just take the rest of our time to kind of flesh it out. The question I have is, why call it fear? I was talking to my uh, kids last night again, and I, and I said, when Daddy says fear, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And they all agreed. Well, it's a bad thing. I mean, who wants to be afraid? Right? We don't think of fear as something positive. And so when the Bible calls us to fear the Lord, not only in this book, but throughout both Old and New Testaments, it seems almost strange to us. It seems like, don't be scared of the Lord. Like, it's like, don't hit me, Lord. Well, I think it's probably helpful, therefore, to understand that there are two types of fear. And both are applied to the Lord, by the way, in the Bible. I like how the uh, wonderful fable, The Wind in the Willows, puts it when rat and mole stumble into the presence of God. And Mole's muscles turn to water and he bows his head and his feet are rooted into the ground. And yet he's not panicking. 
He felt wonderfully at peace and happy. And the conversation begins, Rat? He found breath to whisper, shaking. Are you afraid? Afraid? murmured the rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid? Of him? Oh, never. Never. And yet? And yet, O oh Mole, I am afraid. I think that captures this idea that there is a type of fear that we ought not to have with God. And yet there's another emotion which we rightly would call fear that would be appropriate and indeed helpful for all of us to have if we are to gain wisdom. So let's consider these two types of fear that the Bible presents to us both. We might call one a negative fear. This would be you're afraid that someone's going to hurt you, someone's going to mock you, someone's going to humiliate you. You're afraid of someone because they're dangerous. We might call it an emotional reaction to danger. Right? So should we fear God this way? Well, that depends. We studied a couple weeks ago the words of our Lord in Luke 12. Do you remember when he said in verse 4, Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Yes, fear him. Right? He says to us, we ought to fear God because he can harm us. That is what Christ is saying. God can send you into hell. So fear Him. And often this is how people are brought to faith in Christ. Right? And some of you would testify, my relationship with God began with fear. I remember when I was a drug-using, fornicating 17-year-old who walked into a church for the first time on his own volition, heard the gospel, and it was not bright shining lights and angels singing. It was a punch in the gut. It was a finger in the face as I felt thrown up against the wall. And God saying to my soul, how dare you? And I was afraid of him. There is no doubt. And I would suggest to you this morning, if you are not a Christian, if you have not yet received the blood-bought mercy of Christ, you ought to fear God. I tell you, based upon the authority of God's word, if you persist in your rebellion against him, he will send you one day into eternal torment in hell. It brings great sorrow in my heart to say it, but it is the biblical truth. You ought to fear that. All of us, I think, at one time had a bit of fear of God in that way, but I would suggest to you that this fear is no longer appropriate for Christians. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. You see what John is saying is you believe in Christ... God's love is in you. God is in you. You ought not to fear judgment. You ought not to fear punishment. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so you ought not to fear God this way. Love should cast that aside. And I tell you this morning, if you're not a Christian, you can, you could be rid of the fear of God's judgment forever. Not by being good. Certainly not by being wise but by simply bowing your knee to King Jesus. The Bible says if you confess through their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. It is not a matter of being good. It is a matter of submission and faith to the crucified and resurrected King. Bow to Him as your King and Savior. Submit your life to Him that you may be forgiven and this fear taken from you. Right? We ought not to have this fear. I think John Newton put it beautifully. You know John Newton, the, the slave trader who came to Christ, penned many of our favorite hymns, including, of course, Amazing Grace. There's a line in that, isn't there? It says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And what? You know what? "'And grace my fears relieved.'" It's not what he's talking about. 
He says, it was God's grace that came into my life that taught me to fear His judgment. And once that grace took hold of my life, it was that same grace, that saving grace, that took away that fear. That I no longer fear God this way. The angels show up. What do they say? Do not fear. What are they saying? I'm not here to hurt you, right? I'm not going to harm you. Christians, do not fear that God is going to hurt them. Perfect love casts out fear. But, you go to heaven. Revelation 15, you want to see the perfected saints in heaven saying in verse 4, Who will not fear you, O Lord? So there's fear of God even in heaven. Right? Isn't that extraordinary? In fact, those who who are in heaven, who have been perfected, have no more sin in them, it is to them inconceivable that anyone would not fear Him. Or Psalm 19, verse 9, The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. So there must be another kind of fear in which it is good and appropriate for us to have. It must be another kind of fear that is the key to wisdom. We might call this a positive fear. I would suggest to you it is well known by, by understanding it is an emotional response to delight, not to danger. I listened to a sermon by Tim Keller who told a story that after the first Lord of the Rings movie, um, based upon the, the classic J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, novels, Christopher Lee, who was the actor who played Saruman, that the great evil wizard. Christopher Lee, the, the accomplished, classically trained British actor, all six feet, five inches of him, met one day J.R.R. Tolkien. And he loved him. He admired Tolkien. And he said, when I met him, I began to tremble. Right? He said in his deep British voice, when I met Tolkien, I almost knelt. You know what that's like, don't you? Right? There, there's someone you admire so much, someone you love so much, someone you are in so much awe of. When you meet them, you get all awkward. Right? You start to shake a little bit. The words don't come out of your mouth like you want them to, like they normally do. Why? You're not scared of them. You're not afraid they're going to hurt you. You're afraid you're going to hurt them. You're afraid you're going to disappoint them. You're afraid you're going to grieve them. You love them so much that you don't want to disappoint them. Right? Let's say you played the violin and I handed you a violin and, and you said, well, this is, this is a beautiful violin and, uh, and you begin to play it and, and, and you, it sounds beautiful and, and while you play it, I say, oh, by the way, that's a Stradivarius and uh, um, it was made hundreds of years ago. There's only a, a handful left and it's, it's worth millions of dollars. I would suggest to you, you would probably start to play differently, right? You may even stop to play and hand it back to me. You might even say something like, I'm afraid to play it, right? You'll even use it. Are you afraid it's going to hurt you? Are you scared of it? No. You're afraid you're going to hurt it, right? It's not, do, do you not like it? No, you love it. It's the most precious thing you've seen. And yet you don't want to get near it or not too close to it. Because you might damage it. See, the fear of the Lord is not a fear that He'll condemn you. You're not afraid of Him that He's going to hurt you. You're afraid you're going to hurt Him. You're afraid you're going to grieve Him, as Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30 says. You are in so much awe and delight and love and reverence towards Him. You would do anything to avoid dishonoring Him. You would say, I just want to please you, God. Now, how do we know that's right? How do I know that interpretation of this passage is right? Well, read the rest of verse 7 when it says, Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right? So the Hebrew parallel poetry uses the opposite uh, to, to balance it out. And so fools despise. Despise means contempt, disregard. They're too good for wisdom. Well, the fear of the Lord is the opposite. It's the opposite of despising. What's the opposite of despising? It's delighting. Right? It's not an emotional response to danger. It's an emotional response to delight. This, I think, perhaps is most clearly taught in Psalm chapter 130 and verse 4. This is a wonderful psalm, and I, to be honest, I really never understood it until I began to study this idea. The psalmist simply says, listen to this, With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Is that not interesting? With you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. 
Now, if fear is being scared because of danger, then forgiveness would mean I'm less scared, right? We would say, with you there is forgiveness that you may not be feared. But that's not what he says. He says the opposite. He says, the more you forgive me, the more I fear you. Well, he's not afraid that God's going to hurt him. After all, he is forgiven. Instead, he is so overwhelmed by God's graciousness, his love, his mercy, his compassion. He is so bought, his heart's affections have been so won by this forgiving God that he's afraid that he might not live up to him, that he might dishonor him, he might displease him. With you, there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. I'll tell you today, Christian, if that is true for the psalmist, how much more for you and I who know what our forgiveness cost. This man had no idea the Son of God would walk upon this earth and spill his blood for fools like you and I. He had no idea. Should we not look at the cross? Should we not see his grace and goodness? And should it not make us tremble? Should we not feel in our heart, I just want to kneel before you? This is why the proverb writer in Proverb 8, verse 13 says, The fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. I used to think that meant, Well, I don't want God to get me. I'm afraid of Him. Therefore, I'll stay away from evil so He'll have no cause to get me. I don't think that's what it means anymore. It means I'm so in awe and love with God that I hate evil because it would dishonor Him. It would displease Him. Have you considered my servant Moses, or my servant Job, he said, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? How can I sin against him, Job might have thought, just as Joseph did when propositioned by Potiphar's wife. How can I sin against this God? Yeah, this is the fear of the Lord. I want you to realize, therefore, in closing, how different, how different fearing God is from simply believing in God. You see that? I mean, how many people say, Oh, I know God. And shrug at their sin. And they might say, Oh, I'm forgiven. Friends, if if that's your attitude, you don't fear God. And if you don't fear God, then you're a fool. For the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You are a fool if your sin does not cause you to shudder at the prospect of dishonoring our God who has sent His Son to die for you. This is the key to wisdom. This is the path to wisdom, to fear God. If you fear Him, you're on your way. After all, you wouldn't be proud. You wouldn't be in awe of yourself. You you wouldn't be in awe of your own insight. You'd be happy to receive instruction if it meant living in honor of God. You would, you would search for ways to live rightly. You would labor to have a successful and abundant life, not so that you could be happy, so that you can make your God happy. And in making Him happy, you would be happy. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And, and by the way, it's just not the beginning. It's the, it's the length of wisdom. Right? The fear of the Lord is the door to wisdom and it is the path of wisdom. It is the foundation of all wisdom. You and I must cultivate this deep awe, reverence, and delight in God that we would fear dishonoring Him if we are to be wise. So the question then as we end is how can you get that fear? Maybe you say, I don't fear God this way. I believe in Him, but I don't have this awe of Him. I would suggest to you that you would do well to look away from yourself. And routinely look to God. Day by day. Forcing yourself to consider who God is and what He has done for you. Proverbs 16 and verse 6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. By the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. You see what he's saying? I've been forgiven by you. And and therefore I fear you, which makes me want to get away from the things you used to forgive me of. The degree in which you see God cleansing you from your iniquities, your fear will grow. As the psalmist says, because you forgive me, therefore I fear you. So I would encourage you to look to Jesus. Look to the cross. Look to the the man whom the Bible says in him is hidden all the wisdom of God. Dying 
in the place of fools like you and like me. Look to Christ over and over, day by day, until your pride melts away and your love grows. Fear the Lord. Let it take root in your life. And if you do, I would suggest you be well on your way to what the Bible calls the happy life. Where the proverb writer says, happy is the man who finds wisdom. Our Father, we're thankful. We're thankful that you are a God worthy of our fear, worthy of our awe, our delight. And I think, Father, so many of us will be liberated from the sin that plagues us and the foolish life and decisions we make if we would simply grow in our fear of you that we might find our delight in you. You have helped me so much, Father, in the past two weeks. Will you not help my brothers and sisters? Will you not even in now give them a, an understanding of their own heart? Will you not even now help them to cry out, Father, help me to fear you, that I might be wise. Father, do this work in our church. Help us to be known, even if it is an antiquated phrase, as a God-fearing people. Father, perhaps there is one here this morning that does not fear you at all, living happily and casually their own life in utter rejection of the one who has made them, sustains them, gives them breath to breathe. Will you not, in your kindness, cause them to see that there is a God, a holy God, a fearful God, a wrathful God to all those who would spurn the offer of the blood-bought forgiveness His Son has provided. Cause them, I pray, to know the grace in Christ that they too might fear You appropriately in awe and delight of our King. We pray it. Amen.